Chapter 5. Chapter 5 of my memoirs on events in my life which have been transforming. Transforming from one level of life to another level altogether. And up to now I have recounted what the first floor of Tapiac Hall looked like with the lobby. And if I didn't mention it, it has two small bathrooms, one to the left, one to the right, one designated for women, one designated for men. And there's also a space for an office. I'd mentioned that there are five secretarial desks, three secretarial desks, and filing cabinets and typewriters and the like. And that this lobby opens up into an enormous auditorium which could accommodate three to four hundred dancing teenagers. And that there's a stage at the opposite end of that uh, huge auditorium. Now what I want to do is I want to take you to visualize what you would see if you climb the stairs off to the right of the lobby and go upstairs. First you arrive upon what would normally be a second floor, but instead there's a mezzanine. It's a low ceiling room projecting partially only over the floor below. And this room is much wider than it is deep. In this room you find two executive desks and chairs. And there's also a lounge area off to the other side. There's a huge couch and two overstuffed chairs. And you also see a radio cabinet tall enough to serve as a table, which makes it then an attractive as well as a functional piece of furniture. It's a radio. One wall of this mezzanine has window doors which opened up to be able to view the auditorium below. And you can also look up to see a ceiling, which is another story higher of this cavernous room. The opposite wall has glass doors opening to a small balcony facing the Cleveland Square, which is in front of Tapiac Hall. At one corner of this mezzanine, there's a small but very adequate bathroom. And the reason I'm describing all of this is because this is where we lived mostly. We used that area with a couch and chairs as kind of our living room. We played the radio there, we did our homework there, and that's the bathroom that we used from the whole building. Now I want to take you on this tour of the building to try and visualize where in this whole space of Tapiac Hall we actually slept. Picture ascending two landings of stairs, which then take you to the third floor. And it's the third floor where there is a full-size, regular, regulation-size gymnasium, a basketball court. Again, it's about two stories high. Before entering the gym, you're in an anteroom, a rather large room with two small rooms for equipment purposes on the side, plus a shower room with six shower heads. One of the small rooms became the space where Danny was assigned to sleep. When I first went there, he had an army cot with an army blanket, a small table at the head of the cot, a white radio, small radio on top of that little table, one small desk and a chair, 
plus a small chest of drawers. Everything had to be small because the room itself was small. It was maybe nine feet deep and six feet wide. Not very much room, but enough of a room to sleep in. When I moved in, the cot was replaced by bunk beds. I wound up taking the top bunk. All else remained the same, minus the army blanket. Fortunately, we were able to get a regular twin-size bed blanket for each of us. Our room opened up to the larger room, which opened up to the gym, which meant that we were right in the center of all the activity that would go on in that gym. The wall of this large room facing the front was composed of floor-to-ceiling narrow windows, and in front of the windows were six lavatories with hot and cold running water. So I could be brushing my teeth at one of those lavatories, and I could look and see below Cleveland Square, which was that park in front of Tapiac Hall. We rarely hung around much in this small room except for sleep. Most of our hang-around time, as I mentioned, was in the mezzanine in that area which had the lounge area. In El Paso, I found myself deliberately wanting to learn everything that my brother and adults paid attention to. Like it wasn't enough to just be proud to have access to this whole entire building, to have keys to everything and to have air conditioning and that enormous kitchen which I described with a gas stove and the double kitchen sinks with hot and cold running water, plus a refrigerator versus an icebox. In El Paso, I needed to learn how to make a grocery list. I needed to know how to do grocery shopping and to compare prices, say, at Safeway versus the, the closer but smaller grocery stores. I needed to go to laundries that did wash and fold, but not iron. The ironing cost extra. When our combined incomes increased, so did our going out to eat at restaurants and drugstore counters increase. Those were the days when drugstores usually had a soda fountain counter and some even had booths. In the morning, we always ate breakfast at a restaurant. And because we went to different schools, different directions, I always got to choose which restaurant I went to for my breakfast. This made me feel very grown up. And I usually found a place where I could have a short stack of pancakes. When I didn't pack a lunch for my great for my uh, lunch uh, during school days, I would eat at one of the several restaurants around the school, which of course made me very different from everybody else. My friends, men, boys or girls, if they didn't take a lunch, they would go to a hamburger place, buy the hamburger, and take it back to the school cafeteria. I wanted to have a hot meal, so as I say, I wound up having lunch at different restaurants. By the time I got to the eighth grade, I got up the nerve to ask a girl to go have lunch with me. I felt very important, very grown up. I still remember the restaurant and I still remember the girl. When I went to birthday parties, and there seemed to be one at least one once a month and sometimes twice a month, and this was strange because in, in Las Cruces, I never went to birthday parties. If we had parties amongst our, ourselves, my brothers and sister, we would just have soda and cake around noontime, and that was the party. But in going to these parties, I noticed 
that all my friends, the boys and the girls, their homes were rich homes. And I immediately labeled them as rich because they had lamps. And to me, that was what denominated a house as a rich house. In Las Cruces, I didn't know the difference between poor class and middle class and rich. I just knew there's poor and there's rich. I didn't know that there was a middle class. I didn't realize that. What had happened in Las Cruces, though, in my fifth and sixth grade, one practice that I engaged in to help bring extra money for my mom was to do door-to-door selling of Christmas cards and Christmas seals. Sometimes I would also sell an ointment. It was called cloverine. It's something like Vaseline. It comes in a small can. I would get on my bike and deliberately went to neighborhoods which we considered rich. And we considered them rich because these homes had many rooms. They had driveways. Many had porches. Some of the porches had swings. And we had none of this. The homes had huge picture windows. And it was through the picture windows that I would see the lamps. And looking back on those days of those sales, which were surprisingly many due to the fact that I frequently sold sold all my inventory. I can't help but think that a lot of those sales were sympathy sales. And what I mean by that was the woman of the house who usually answered, the mother or the wife, she's the one that I would deal with, and they invariably bought something. I don't remember how much they bought, but they always bought something. And I feel now that they must have felt sorry for this young kid who was a fifth or sixth grader, which I was, I was a sixth grader. And I was selling Christmas cards, 25 cents for five cards. I don't remember whether I charged for the Christmas seals or not. The cloverine was 35 cents a can. My memories of those encounters are that they were such pleasant encounters for how I was treated. And I enjoyed those trips to the houses which were so rich I felt that they had lamps and not naked light bulbs hanging from the center of the ceiling. They also had doorbells. I could not imagine any of the homes that we had having doorbells. And I realized at some point that we had lived in eight homes by the time I was in the sixth grade. And in my later teen years, I asked my sister, why do we have so many, why do we move so much? Why do we have eight houses? And she said, because Mama didn't have the money to pay for the rent, so they asked us to leave. That was the first time I realized what she had had to put up with. She had depended on my father to send a money order of $5. I guess it was every, every week. But sometimes the money order didn't come and didn't come. And so she couldn't save enough to have enough to pay at the end of the month. So we were asked to leave. I don't remember wanting to have a driveway or a porch or a swing, but I definitely wanted to have big windows and living rooms. And Tapiac didn't have any of that, but with all the grandeur that I saw in it, it just didn't need any of this. I didn't so much feel rich, but extremely fortunate because I felt so special. There were so many things happening to me in El Paso which made me feel so special. 
even on ordinary days, because ordinary days were so much more different in my home life than the home life of my peers.